Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This is the third episode in our American History series, and today Gary Gerstel is going to tell us the story of Ida Tarbell, the woman who brought down Standard Oil. Could the same thing happen today in the age of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just $19.99. And they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Today's episode is about monopoly and muckraking. Let's start with monopoly. So it has a particular cachet, I think, in American political and public life at the end of the 19th century, which is when we're coming to. But what's the origin story here? What did monopoly mean as an idea, as a term at this point? Monopoly in America comes straight out of the American Revolution. And the belief that George III, the British crown, had taken all power onto itself and was strangling the liberties of the people. And so America's foundation story, its origin story, is about not just rebelling against the crown and George III, but it's rebelling against the principle of monopoly. It was originally conceived of as political monopoly of one man, one institution having control over all political institutions and not allowing other voices or serious representation. There was an economic dimension to it because part of the power of the crown was to issue charters to crown favorites, to establish colonies, to to trade, to transport, to mine. And this practice of issuing monopolies is actually transferred initially into the new American nation. So there is an economic dimension to it, but it's regarded with a great deal of skepticism and anger because economic monopoly like political monopoly, is going to strangle the rights of Americans to be free, to be enterprising, to have political representation, and to have a shot at a good life. And so in the 19th century, as industrialization gets serious, especially from the end of the Civil War to the late 19th century, and when America is becoming an industrial nation led by corporate titans who are transforming the country irrevocably and radically and amassing uh, huge amounts of economic power to do this, the charge of monopoly becomes a powerful charge, and it has the legitimacy of the American Revolution behind it. Monopoly is ruining the republic. We did not establish a republic to tolerate this kind of centralized, concentrated power And the republic will not survive unless the centers of monopoly are taken on and broken up. And thus, anti-monopoly arguably becomes the most important radical tradition opposing corporate power in America. And in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, during the so-called first Gilded Age, when so much economic power is being amassed by corporations, this anti-monopoly tradition is in full flower. This nation founded on anti-monopoly by the end of the 19th century is dominated by monopoly, but it's not through charter. So these these businesses didn't build up their monopoly powers because they were given them by the federal government. It's through business practice, 
fairly sharp business practice. How did they do it? What are the mechanisms by which this anti-monopolistic society gets dominated by these monopoly powers? Well, that gets us into a complicated discussions of the uh, partly the origins of industrialization in America. There is a what is perceived to be a free economic environment after the Civil War, an encouragement of corporate capitalist enterprise. There have been very serious efforts on the part of the individual states to regulate enterprise. This, too, fell under the police power, which we discussed in a previous episode, which gave state governments quite extraordinary power over these individual enterprises. But the Supreme Court, as a result of a particular interpretation of the 14th Amendment passed in 1868, declares by the 1880s corporations to be individuals who are protected, as all individuals are, by the Bill of Rights, and they have liberties that governments cannot interfere with, especially liberty of contract. And liberty of contract becomes a code word for enterprises to do whatever they needed to do, to enter whatever contracts they could sign, to coerce whatever contracts they could wrangle for the sake of building up their businesses, their enterprises. Now, the so-called men of power, sometimes called robber barons, are very talented enterprising individuals. Andrew Carnegie is one. John D. Rockefeller is another. Cornelius Vanderbilt, a shipping and railroad magnate, is a third. Uh, These men see opportunities for building large corporations without opposition, and they see an opportunity to enforce their corporate will on the land, and they are successful in doing so by the late 19th century. So that the size and power of the corporations are larger than really anyone could have imagined at the time. The amount of wealth they control, the sectors of the economy that they control, this degree of power was unimaginable as recently as 30 or 40 years previous to this. And the language that was used, and this is one of the things that sometimes confuses non-Americans, these giant enterprises were called trusts, and the movement becomes not the anti-monopoly movement, but the anti-trust movement, which sometimes sounds a bit odd because most people are in favor of trust in political life, and why would you want to abolish it? But it's not that. It's these giant conglomerates. And that's what they became, essentially. They just accumulated all of the corporate power in one entity, even if it wasn't a single corporation, a single man in, I think, every case, was responsible for the running of the trust. That's how it worked. Yes, a a single man or or a single corporation. Trusts initially were pools of different companies that pooled their resources together. These are actually declared unconstitutional. And then you have a great merger movement in which the trusts consolidate into single giant enterprises. They have two techniques. One is called horizontal integration. If you're in steel, you buy up all the steel companies in America. If you're in railroads, you buy up all the railroad companies in America. If you're in oil, you buy up all the refineries in America. The other technique is called vertical integration, where you seek to control every bit of the production process from the moment you get your hands on the necessary raw material till the finished product enters some kind of showroom or some kind of place where it can be sold. So for steel, you get coal mines, that you control. You control railroads that get the coal to to a place where the steel is made. And then for oil, you also control the oil, you control the railroads, you control the refineries, you control the vast distribution system of 
petrol stations, that is called vertical integration. So you get both all of your industry and then you get every step in the production process. This is the dream of every corporate magnate in America in the late 19th, early 20th century. And the greatest magnates pulled this feat off. Some of the resistance was political, and we'll come on to that, but some of it came from journalism. And this was also the era of muckraking. And the attempt was to expose the practices that had produced this extraordinary power. And we're talking not just about oil and steel, but beef, sugar, the great beef trusts, Anything that could be mass-produced and mass-sold was susceptible to this kind of, especially if it was an essential of life, was susceptible to this kind of accumulation of power. So let's talk about one of the muckrakers, Ida Tarbell, who took on Standard Oil. Tell us a bit about who she was and where she came from. Well, she came from Erie, Pennsylvania, ordinary middle-class roots, not a position of privilege. She grew up in the late 19th century. She grew up in the period of this great corporate expansion. She was a member of people who were well regarded in the small town of Erie, Pennsylvania, in which she lived. And she had or told of the experience of seeing her own family and good people like her family displaced by the new robber barons, uh, the new titans of industry. Pennsylvania was a point zero for the discovery of petroleum in America. We don't really think of that today as Pennsylvania as being a great source of oil, but it was. This is where John D. Rockefeller began his exploration, and then he set up his business in nearby Ohio, bordering on Pennsylvania. So Ida Tarbell uh, grew up with John D. Rockefeller, the mastermind of Standard Oil of Ohio, this great petroleum oil magnate. And the story she came to tell about her life is of, of her life, which was good, wrecked by the coming of these oil magnates who transformed life, uh, widened the gulf between the rich and, and poor, and engaged in all kinds of illegal acts and putting all kinds of good, hardworking businessmen out of their trade for the sake of exercising monopoly power. She becomes, uh, like many other educated people of her time and place, a journalist, a believer in the importance and value of both the spoken and written word. Late 19th century is a time of great expansion in journalism, magazine publishing, the spread of much cheaper magazines, dramatically increasing the public, the consuming public for this. This was a growth area centered in places like New York, and she finds her way to one of these journals, these cheap journals, looking to do important work, but also something sensational, perhaps, to bring to the attention of their readership. And she undertakes to tell the story of the Standard Oil of Ohio and to reveal for a willing public all the shenanigans and all the illegal practices that John D. Rockefeller had engaged in for the sake of building up her monopoly position. She does remarkable research. To read the research she did on Standard Oil today is to be impressed by its quality and depth. Perhaps not the best writer to start off with, but under the editor at McClure, becomes a quite effective polemicist and arguing interpretively for the misdeeds of Standard Oil, but also in keeping with 
the spirit of the time, unearthing facts and letting facts speak for themselves. Uh, This was not yellow journalism. To engage her study of, of this phenomenon is to be taken deep into the workings of a corporate organization, and it's the very depth of her reporting that makes her expose so powerful. It is first published in a serialized form in McClure's, reflecting a 19th century practice of many books, fiction and nonfiction, published in serial form first and then collected as a book. And this has explosive effect in American society. There were quite a lot of muckrakers, so-called because they were raking up all the muck. This was a term that Theodore Roosevelt had coined. Uh, But hers was the most powerful indictment, and it leads to exposure of the Rockefeller family, exposure of its practices, and it leads ultimately to the breakup of the Standard Oil of Ohio and inaugurates a period in which the question of what to do about the trusts, what to do about monopoly power, becomes the most important issue in American politics. That way of life that she says she saw destroyed by Rockefeller. I mean, one of the things that's sort of hard to grasp is that we're talking about oil. And I think these days we tend to think of oil as a mass industry. It's going to be done by giant corporations. But in its own origin story, it could be done by small scale enterprises. This was not that different from farming, uh, that these families were people who happened to be on land where it was possible to extract small amounts of oil on a relatively small scale. And what she described, among other things, was the way that the Rockefeller Oil Trust put all of these small-scale operations out of business, sometimes by buying them up, making them an offer they couldn't refuse, but otherwise by using their control over the whole production process, crucially the railroads, Mm -hmm. to make it simply too expensive to transport oil except on a mass scale. It was that classic monopolist practice. Once you had economies of scale, you could put everyone else out of business by getting the people you needed to do the transportation just to do it cheaper for you. And that was one of the things that she exposed, that there was a point beyond which it was impossible to resist this because they controlled the whole thing. Drilling an oil well was not all that different from sinking a well in your backyard. Um, There was a lot of resemblance between the two activities. You might need a little help, but the help would be available locally. So yes, this became, from the beginning, oil was a wildcat enterprise, and wildcat meant individual entrepreneurs seeking their fortune not all that different from gold prospecting in the first year or two. So this was kind of a, a rush into this industry. And Rockefeller saw the opportunity to crush it. And as you suggested, he would buy them out. But his most critical device, as you suggested, was controlling the rail line so that even those competitors who he could not buy out, he effectively prevented them from getting their oil to market. And so he made them ship their oil on his rail lines, and he made the shipping rate so injurious so that they could not possibly survive. And because he was the biggest operator, if he had to lower the price of his oil for three months or a year or two years in order to wipe out competitors, he did. And he wiped out all his competitors, and he did this all the while posing as the most devout Baptist in the eastern United States. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the things that Tarbell did, which is a classic practice of all good investigative journalism was she befriended someone on the inside, a man called Rogers, I think, who was, I think, had originally been one of these small scale operators who then became number three in the Rockefeller organization. And he made the classic mistake that people often do when they're talking to journalists and that he thought she was friendly. And then he was horrified when he discovered that she'd been writing down everything that he said. And he gave her access to some of the inside knowledge of how the organization worked. And then when it was written on the page, it didn't look so good. Uh, she got inside. Beware of those honest-looking journalists. Yes, I think it speaks also to the confidence and hubris of this corporation at the time that they had felt they had achieved such a monopoly position. Why not share some of the secrets of the trade with the broader public? Why not celebrate what John D. Rockefeller and his associates had done. It was a story from one perspective of stunning corporate success and not understanding, having lost touch with public opinion and not understanding the degree to which these practices, once exposed, uh, were likely to upset a very broad cross-section of the American population that had been coming to feel over a period of 10 or 15 years that the power that these corporations were exercising were simply illegitimate. And it also mattered that Ida Tarbell was able to focus so much on the ordinary wildcatters, the ordinary businessmen thrown out of business by this monopoly power. And once you connect a corporation to monopoly and then you make the connection to George III, you can begin to introduce the threat to the republic that this corporation represents. And if you, are, if you were successful in communicating to a public that corporate power threatened the very essence of this American republic founded to give liberty to ordinary people enjoyed on that scale nowhere else in the world, it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. This is me talking to you, David, uh, that interpretation of American history what matters here is that Americans believed it, that this was an exceptional society in which ordinary people had access to opportunity, economic mobility, economic success, freedom available to the nowhere else in the world on that scale to lower orders. If you believe that this was the promise of the American Revolution, if this is what you believe was the reason that you had come to America as an immigrant, if this is what you believed about your society, and then you read about the wrecking job, the wrecking ball, that John D. Rockefeller was taking to this republic, then you can begin to understand the fury that Ida Tarbell ignited among a very large reading public about the nefarious deeds of these corporate titans. That hubris, when I was reading about it, the person it made me think of was Elon Musk. There's that kind of, I'm so great at this. I'm such a genius businessman. People are going to want to know how I do it. You need to be very careful, I think, believing that stuff. We'll come on to the, the current titans in a moment. The political consequences of this, as you say, were profound. And they were, in some respects, bipartisan in that it did reach different aspects of American political life. 
and it cuts across the administrations of Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson. It changed America. I mean, this is an example of journalism changing the country in which the journalism is being done. Journalism didn't do it on its own, but it set the tone for what became known as the progressive reform movement in American life, which was the most powerful reform movement of the early 20th century. And at its core was what to do about monopoly and what to do about the trusts. In the election of 1912, which is one of the most important elections of the early 20th century, you had to answer as a presidential candidate, what were you going to do about the trusts? What were you going to do about monopoly? There was a socialist, Eugene Debs, saying, nationalize them. There was Woodrow Wilson saying, in the truest anti-monopoly tradition, break them all up. There was Theodore Roosevelt saying, they're too big to break up, but by God, I'm going to bang them with my big stick and we're going to regulate the hell out of them because they have become a threat to American values in the American community. Those three candidates together take 75% of the vote. And then there was forlorn William Howard Taft, the actual Republican standard bearer, who drifts off into ignominy because he won't take a strong stand on the trust. It's an extraordinary moment where three out of every four Americans voting are voting either to break up the trusts, nationalize them, or regulate them. And this begins a movement that lasts through the 1930s and 40s. Uh, Nationalization does not occur. Uh, America has never been that friendly to socialists. Anti-monopoly is not carried through to its conclusion because if you're really serious about breaking up all the large corporations in America, they might not be socialists, but those are serious, very serious acts against private property. The scheme that triumphs is the scheme of Theodore Roosevelt, then sealed by Franklin Roosevelt, his cousin. And that is to put these corporations under a kind of regulation and under a kind of regulatory regime that preserves them and their power, unless they get a little bit too big, in which case parts of them will be broken off, but subjects them to the kind of regulation that became common throughout the social democratic world of post-World War II Europe, high taxation rates, serious regulation about quality of products, making sure they don't control too much, making the kind of control that John D. Rockefeller had had exercised impossible to achieve again. And it inaugurates a period from the 1940s to the 1970s, which is one of the most egalitarian periods in American history, where the inequality between the rich and poor narrows, where the highest tax rates reach 91% and stay there for 20, 25 years, and where um, a good life is created for a large majority of Americans. This is all the product of that turmoil that Ida Tarbell and others ignited in the early 20th century. Now we're in another gilded age, and we're in another monopolistic age. One of the things that's changed is the regulation of corporations, partly due to, I think you can call it, forms of judicial activism, in that the judicial regime has changed in its relation not just to corporate power, but particularly to monopoly and the idea that monopoly is bad if it leads consumers to suffer because of higher prices, but otherwise it's fine. And that's one of the arguments that the big tech companies use, which is that they're lowering prices. So their monopolistic power is not dangerous. And yet we're about to enter a presidential election where certainly on the democratic side, people do need to have a position on this. The socialist position is more muted. If Corbyn was standing to be president of your country, I think he would be wanting to nationalise. But the breakup agenda is very clearly there 
with Elizabeth Warren, and so is the regulatory agenda with a whole range of candidates. Can we see the parallels here? Are we entering from the Gilded Age into another potentially politically antitrust age? Or has the judicial story changed the picture so dramatically that actually it is a different environment? I think there are parallels. I think it's taken a lot longer for a progressive-like reform movement to develop than was the case in the first Gilded Age. The first Gilded Age began in the 1870s and 1880s, and by 1900, 1910, the progressive reform movement and Ida Tarbell and her associates are, are swinging. The second Gilded Age also began in the 1970s and 80s. In 2000, there was not a progressive or Ida Tarbell in sight, and not one that people paid serious attention to. The real emergence is in the decade after the financial crash of 2008. That has changed our politics in a fundamental way. I sometimes ask, is there an Ida Tarbell of, of this generation? And um, there might be in Jane Mayer, author of Dark Money, a term that has entered popular lexicon of money that is that is darkened, that's kept from public view and all kinds of nefarious corporate operations and malfeasance, in this case pertaining to the Koch family, the Koch brothers, which may have some resemblance to the Rockefeller forces of the late 19th century, not the least because petroleum refining is still their core activity. And I think the Koch brothers together may hold the largest fortune of billions in the United States. But if you look for interventions in the public culture by journalists, you can find other examples too. Glenn Greenwald. Carol uh, Cadwallader in this country. Yes. Uh, WikiLeaks, Edward Snowden. These are not in the same mode of journalism, but they have changed the culture in, in various ways. And I think we can now see a kind of anger at corporate power and consolidation that is beginning to look like the anger and fury of the late 19th and early 20th century. And in the high-tech firms, the United States does have a series of institutions that have achieved a kind of extraordinary power, that U.S. Steel, that the Sugar Trust, the Beef Trust, that Standard Oil had in the late 19th and early 20th century. And we have we have now seen uh, a serious campaign, and Warren's campaign embodies this, to break these up, that these institutions have grown so large that they now threaten the American Republic. So I think the parallel is there, and also around Warren are a series of lawyers whose godfather is Louis Brandeis, who became a Supreme Court justice in 1916 on the basis of all the work he had done to take down corporate monopolies in the previous 16 or 20 years. Now, the Supreme Court of that era was an arch-conservative court, and the reason it took from Theodore Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt to achieve success for this regulatory regime can be summarized in two words, the Supreme Court. That's three words, the Supreme Court. A conservative Supreme Court standing athwart a popular movement of this sort is not unprecedented. The message to take from that earlier time is that the struggle against a conservative Supreme Court takes a long time but that even if it takes a long time, it can be won. And that is part of the message of the Roosevelt insurgency early in the century. And one thing to be learned from that is that these people set themselves up as critics of the Supreme Court as holding back American democracy. The court is held in such esteem in America, largely owing to the Warren Court and its success in dismantling Jim Crow and racial segregation in the 1960s and 70s, that Americans are, haven't gotten to that point. But at a certain point, 
the heavily politicized character of the court is going to enter popular debate. In other words, is the Supreme Court too political to be considered legitimate? And they may themselves be targeted as an agent of monopoly power, unchecked, that is threatening the American Republic. So that is one reason why the 2020 presidential election, it might be more significant because of what it leads to in replacing the, the very old justices on the court who almost certainly will stand down in the next four years, that the anti-monopoly movement may depend on the result of the election for that reason more than for the agenda or manifesto of a successful candidate if Trump loses. Yes, yes. And I think it's important not to see the 2020 as a do and die moment for this anti-monopoly movement. The previous monopoly movement took a long time to achieve its successes, and I think we have to expect something of the sort happening again. 2020 will maybe most important for the Supreme Court justices, just as you mentioned. But I think these sentiments and these mobilizations are not going away. And what has to happen more than has happened already for the forces supporting this is to connect this anti-monopoly tradition directly to 1776 and the promise of the American Revolution and the kind of republic that was meant to be created at this time. Whether Warren wins or not, and I think the odds are against her winning, I think the forces that she and Sanders have unleashed are going to continue to uh, percolate in American society. And in that respect, the similarities uh, between early 20th century and now become very relevant. And I think we also have to factor into the climate crisis to this. And I think the climate crisis is going to require a kind of regulation of industry in the common interest, however it's defined, of the sort that's been deeply out of favor in what we might call the neoliberal moment or the free market moment that dominated so much politics in the world from the 1980s to the 20-teens. I think that moment is passing, making this earlier moment of anti-monopoly agitation all the more relevant for understanding the possibilities of politics in the 21st century. In the next episode, Sarah Churchwell is going to be back with us talking about how women got the vote in America and what it meant for the politics of race, the tortured history of the 19th Amendment. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics.